I think there's something that's deeply problematic with the multicultural paradigm that had been obscuring anti-blackness, which it was causing all sorts of harm as is being revealed every day now as we're investigating anti-blackness in real estate and healthcare and environment, on and on. Right? There are real problems there and we need a new paradigm to address that. But we're in a moment of transition, so it's unsettled what that will look like. And because it's unsettled, this sort of toxic and abusive environment can grow up because there's no settled paradigm. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. The Valdorcha in Tuscany is one of my favorite parts of the world. It is so beautiful that it's easy to imagine that those who are lucky enough to live there will never have experienced anything truly terrible. But that is a mistake. At the height of World War II, the residents of the Val d'Orcia became a staging ground for some of the most bloody clashes between partisans and Nazi occupiers, with the SS exacting bloody retribution for any attacks on the troops. And one of my favorite outlooks, an inconspicuous plug, now reminds visitors of a somber history. You who pass and ponder this peaceful valley, it reads, stay a while and remember those who have perished here. In times of peace, it's always impossible to really, truly, vividly imagine war. When you look at the hills of Tuscan today, you can't quite conjure the horrors its residents once witnessed. When you walk through the streets of a bustling metropolis like Taipei, as I've been doing for the last few days, it's impossible to grasp at more than an abstract level that one man's decision could soon turn it into a bloody battlefield. And for all of these reasons, most people fail to imagine what it would mean if Russia launched a full-scale invasion of a country, Ukraine, with which it shared so much culture and history, or the extent to which this strangely 19th century war was to be filled with 20th century horrors. Now, at the beginning of that war, it commanded the attention of much of the world. But in the last months, attention has started to flag. Stories about Ukraine have migrated from the front page of newspapers to the inner pages. Companies that once displayed Ukrainian flags on their social media accounts have had to think about how to subtly remove them, sometimes choosing to pledge their allegiance to some other worthy cause for a few weeks before taking down the symbol. The human mind doesn't just boggle at the thought that a quote-unquote normal place, whether it be Kiev or Taipei or Valdorcha, can from one day to the next turn to a battlefield. The discomforting truth of the matter is that war to outsiders, when it does not threaten your immediate survival, is scary enough that you want to look away and in some perverse way boring enough that it is easy to look away. When the first reports of terrible war crimes emanated from Russia, when it first looked like Russian tanks were about to roll down the streets of Kiev, the world paid attention. But the longer the war dragged on, the more the 
debt of a world piled up. The last one day's news seemed to differ from another's. Now, in a sense, it makes no difference to Ukrainian civilians and soldiers whether we tune into the horror we live every day. But what does make a difference is whether civilians have enough money to heat their homes, whether soldiers have sufficient weapons to expel a brutal invader from their country. So though we may find it increasingly difficult to pay attention, we must at least ensure that our governments continue to do what they can to support a righteous cause. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers continue to risk their lives in defense of their freedoms. The success will determine whether 44 million of their compatriots will for the foreseeable future suffer under neocolonial domination. It may also determine whether the residents of Central and Western Europe can continue to enjoy a fragile peace we long took for granted, and even whether the people of Russia will someday get another chance at governing their own fate. Anyone who knows anything about the nature of war must hope that the fields of wheat in Ukraine will soon look as peaceful as the fields of wheat in the Valdorcha. In that sense, I agree with the so-called peace activists who are pressing for a timely solution to this conflict. As I think about the first anniversary of the war, my deepest hope is that there shan't be a second. But the peace, when it comes, must prove to be durable and just. Back in the middle of the 20th century, the peace-loving partisans of Valdorcha were right to take the fight to the Nazis. And today, the peace-loving people of Ukraine are right to resist the tanks that are trying to annex their country. The least we can do is to help them in the concrete ways that matter most. My guest today is Vincent Lloyd. Vincent is a professor at Villanova University, where he's the director of Africana Studies. He is the author, among many other books, of Black Dignity, The Struggle Against Domination. Vincent came to my attention because of a viral essay about his experience teaching a course at the Telluride Seminars. This is an organization recruiting some of the most talented high school students in the country to give them a college-level experience. Vincent, who is himself Black, had taught about issues of racial justice at the seminar before, about 10 years ago, and that all went swimmingly. He went back this summer, and the experience just deteriorated in a very shocking way with teaching assistants effectively organizing the students against the seminar, with students complaining that they were being harmed by the content of a course, you know, at a time when there's still discussion and debate about whether or not there is a cultural problem with liberalism, whether or not some of these well-intentioned institutions can degenerate into a lack of intellectual openness, into political dogma, into rank bullying. The story he tells, I think, is a powerful testament to how even the most well-meaning people, the people who have the most standing to speak on some of those issues, people who, as you see in later parts of the conversation, are well to the left of me even, can wind up in the crosshairs of these kinds of moral panics and how that can destroy the mission of important, very, very established institutions like Telluride. 
So Vincent kindly told us in very compelling terms the story of this seminar gone very badly wrong. But then we also have a broader discussion about what it means to aspire for a society without domination and a society of racial justice today. Both across our similarities and our political differences, I hope this conversation is a model for the sort of debates that we should be having in society and the sort of debates that at times are becoming more difficult today. Vincent Lloyd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So your name came across my transom because three different people sent an article to me that you wrote, but I've since looked into your work, which is very interesting beyond this particular experience you went through. But tell me about this experience you had of teaching at this Telluride Summer School, which is for listeners outside of academia, outside of the United States, this really prestigious program for high school students to come together, spend a summer studying texts, living together intensively, making their own rules. And, you know, it has many, many famous alumni, including many graduates of this podcast, like Frank Fukuyama and so on. So it's a really special place and it has a kind of hallowed place in the American academic imagination. You taught a seminar there before, I believe, which went well. And then you, you went back last summer and it went a little bit less well. Tell us the story of who you are and what happened. Thanks. Yeah. So in 2014 and last year in 2022, I taught a course called Race and the Limits of Law in America. I co-taught the course with an Indigenous Studies scholar and lawyer. And we were interested in revisiting the topics last year that we'd talked about several years before in light of Black Lives Matter, in light of resurgent Indigenous protest and transformations in the American political climate. It seemed like in 2014, our challenge was to take students who vaguely cared about social justice and deepen their understanding of the history of race in America, the various theoretical frameworks that they could take for thinking about immigration, indigeneity, anti-Blackness, and other forms of racism. 2014, just to take us back to that for a moment, so it felt like the students were sort of, they sort of broadly on board and they were perhaps ideologically sort of broadly aligned, but it was abstract to them. They weren't very fluent in those concepts. When you're saying you sort of had to introduce them to it, it felt like, oh, this is interesting, but we don't really know anything about it. What was the sort of vibe as it were in the classroom at the time? The students came from diverse ideological perspectives. Some self-identified as Republicans or conservative, some liberal, some were just figuring out what it meant to have a political identity, but they all in some way cared about justice and were, I think, primed to dig deeper. They were excited about an intellectual challenge of reading difficult texts carefully, wrestling with ideas, having complicated conversations that would evolve over time, which was what my experience in seminars was like too as an undergraduate, which excited me about teaching in this program to be able to have the time and space to reach extraordinarily talented young people and dig deep with them into hugely important questions and transform their lives, or at least have the potential to transform their lives, as I think the Telluride program has done for many of its alumni, that sounded really promising. And some of the emails I've received in, in recent days have been dozens of Telluride alumni recounting how their summer seminar was a transformative experience for them. And so in 2014, you take these students who today we might think there might be a source of conflict, right? There's people who self-define as Republicans, people who think of themselves as very progressive, a bunch of people who say, I'm interested in politics, I'm interested in justice, I don't really know what I believe yet. But you felt there was a productive 
seminar. You felt you were able to give these students that experience of grappling with these ideas and perhaps coming out, not all with your view or not all the same view, but with a firmer view of what they themselves think about the world. And they were able to do that in some kind of spirit of friendship. What was that classroom like about a decade ago, nine years ago? So these are 16-year-olds, right? So their views were not particularly deeply held, even when they expressed political identifications. They also are 16 and so awkward, right? So trying to figure out how to, you know, be around each other, how to live away from their parents, how to govern themselves. Part of the Telluride ethos is a commitment through democracy, right? The the participants are the ones who govern their community for the summer, for the six weeks that they're together over the summer. And the whole Telluride Association is governed by young alumni, alumni who are primarily in their 20s, who are overseeing these summer programs as well as some other initiatives of the Telluride Association. And by the way, if you allow me a very small personal discretion, I wasn't aware of that element of a Telluride program until reading your essay. And I have a kind of personal connection to it because I think that one of the first people who ran a model like that was Janusz Korczak, a Polish educator who ran an orphanage in Poland in the 30s and early 40s and actually chose to go to his death with his kids in the gas chambers. He was given a chance to escape because he was a very prominent educator and he had some friends who somehow would have helped him escape, but he chose to stay with his kids in this tragic moment. And my grandfather, for a few years, worked at that orphanage as a sort of young progressive educator. So this idea of self-government of kids is something to which I have a sort of strange personal connection. And it's a very noble ideal, for as we'll see, I'm mentioning the gun that's going to go off later in the conversation, you know, it doesn't necessarily always go as planned. Just from conversations with various Telluride alumni, there are always some failures, right? Every time this program runs, things go wrong in various ways, and people learn from it, right? The the next time the, the community does things a little bit differently. And there's a kind of responsiveness and both institutionally and then in the lives of the individuals who are part of that experiment. It helps shape them in the longer term. In 2022, last year, I came in with similar expectations. There would be extraordinarily talented students, which there were, that they would be somewhat awkward and trying to figure out how to live together, which they were. But this time, Telluride had changed some of the structure of the program so that in addition to the seminar I was teaching, there would be a series of anti-racism workshops. So they would take the seminar I was teaching in the morning and then these anti-racism workshops in the afternoon. And these anti-racism workshops were much more in the spirit of communicating the politics that one ought to have, communicating statements that one ought to believe, basically to be a good person. And all the content of those anti-racism workshops was content that I agreed with. It was what I wanted to push the students toward in the seminar, right? That we need to take anti-Black racism really seriously, right? That the afterlives of slavery persist into the present, that we need to take intersectional lenses to how we're understanding forms of racial violence and harm. All of these sorts of things strike me as right. And in my academic life, there are things that I try and develop and write about as well. But they were being communicated to the students in this format of the anti-racism workshop in the afternoon in a way that was basically dogmatic. These are things that one has to believe. These are the prerequisites to participation in this community, this democratic community. I don't know whether you went to those workshops or how much you can tell us about them, but what is it that made them dogmatic and how is it that this workshop ultimately helped to set up this social pressure cooker, which second mention of a gun that's going to go off, ended up going really badly wrong? Yes. So I was only in the house in the morning when I was teaching the seminar, the students reported things that were happening in the afternoon workshops, as did the teaching assistants who were leading the afternoon workshops and who were in charge of the 
high school student's life for the 21 hours a day that they were not in my seminar. My sense was that there was both an issue in pedagogy and in culture in these anti-racism workshops. So to give an example of the culture, there was a practice of snapping when one agrees that was fostered in these workshops and then that entered into our seminar space. But the effect of that was to limit students saying things that were controversial or even experimental. No one would snap after something that was controversial or experimental was said. And then someone else would say something that was very much in line with what the workshop leader was trying to advance, this piece of dogma that was trying to be advanced, and everyone would snap. And so it would discourage further experimentation, maybe not unlike Twitter likes and you know the sort of social media culture that we see around us now. So that's one example of the sort of culture. Another example that's somewhere between culture and substance, we heard that in these workshops, it was communicated to the students that one needs to respect and defer to those who've had personal experiences of discrimination and harm done to them and done to their families. Again, this seems like a reasonable thing. I tried to think about this too, how we can give epistemic privilege, how we can listen to the wisdom of those who are marginalized and face harm in various ways. And yet, I think that should be a conversation starter rather than a conversation stopper, right? When someone says, from my experience of these harms, this is what I'm thinking now, right? That should open up a dialogue about what are these systems of harm? What are their histories? What are the cultures around them? How can we address them? Rather than shutting down conversation. And from what we understood in those anti-racism workshops, the culture that developed was that once someone shared a personal experience of racist incident or other form of harm that happened to them, that shut down conversation. That had to be the end of the dialogue. That's interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking a bunch about what's often called standpoint epistemology or standpoint theory. I finished a book chapter on this for, for my next book recently. And it seems to me that here the sort of key distinction is between the obvious intuition, which seems right, that how we experience the world depends in some crucial ways on who we are, we're more likely to experience forms of sexual harassment if you're a young woman, and you're more likely to encounter bad encounters with the police if you're a black man in the United States. And so that requires us to have some amount of empathy for our fellow citizens and to realize that when they're telling us something that makes us uncomfortable or telling us something that perhaps might seem wrong, but isn't in line with our own experiences, we should take the time to actually listen to them and to have an open mind about what they're saying. Say, hey, perhaps they have a piece of information here that I don't have, and if I care about living in a just society and I care about the well-being of my fellow citizen, I should actually take the time to take that seriously. That seems perfectly straightforward and an important insight that in the history of philosophy has sometimes been ignored. You know, on Twitter, what's become of this often is this idea that if you know we're from different groups, that means we can't have this conversation. I just cannot understand you and you can't really understand me. And so therefore we should defer to each other in particular sort of less oppressed people should defer to more oppressed people. And that, you know, I go through this in his book chapter and people like Lidal Draw, a young African-American philosopher, has written about this very, very well. Those assumptions really don't hold up in the philosophical sense, right? There's a whole set of assumptions you have to make about all members of a certain group having a certain set of experiences, about the inability to communicate for politically relevant pieces of an experience. You may never be able to experience exactly what it feels like, but you may well be able to communicate the things of that that are politically relevant, right? And I think it's a really weak basis for political solidarity. I think there's something really sad about a society in which I don't say, hey, you've shared your experiences with me. I have empathy for the injustice you've suffered. I want to live in a society where 
people don't suffer those kind of injustices. That to me seems like a strong model of political solidarity to say, hey, I can't really understand what you're telling me, but I recognize you're more oppressed, so I'll just defer to whatever you demand. That feels to me like a really weak and depressing form of political solidarity. So if it was a little soliloquy, but but so it sounds like, you know, the way that people talked about stamp and fear and stamp epistemology in the stamina was sort of very much in the second category rather than the first. Is that fair to say? Yes, but it, if I could just add a, a little bit here, you're nicely naming these issues, but I think they're even more complicated, right? So just as human beings, we're never going to fully understand each other. And there is some gap that will always remain between what we can appreciate even when we listen really, really carefully and the experiences of others, that gap is both about our humanity and about the uh, formation, cultural formations that, that we've had. So appreciating that tragic sensibility that we're never going to fully communicate, fully understand, even as we're trying, which then requires some humility, right? We're going to try and fail and then we have to adjust and we'll try and fail. That seems really important to appreciate. It's not just about pieces of information that we might not be getting, but because we've overlooked them, but it might even be about our own habits and our own styles of reasoning that have been shaped by the people we've been around, the cultures that we've been formed in that block us from encountering information or experiences unlike ours. This all seems, again, right to me, but also very tricky to navigate. And in the seminar, the second time in 2022, after this new culture of deferral to experiences of discrimination and other new cultures developed in the wake of Black Lives Matter and other political protests that have been doing hugely important work to shed light on instances of injustice. In this new environment, the students were resistant to ask critical questions about texts if those texts seem to be expressing the experiences of the author, right? If it's Angela Davis talking about her experience in prison, we couldn't ask critical questions about that. If it's Christina Sharp, this Black studies theorist, describing how the afterlives of slavery affect her family, we couldn't ask critical questions about that, at least when we tried to, or when we tried to encourage that in the seminar space, there was a block of students who said that they were being harmed by the open discussion. And so when did you start feeling this creeping into your seminar? Sort of what was the first moment when you realized, oh, we were having what I thought was, you know, a constructive, fruitful discussion about a text, but suddenly members of the seminar were saying, no, that's harmful. We can't have that. Yes. The very first day of the seminar was supposed to start on a a Monday. And the the day before we were told, actually, we have to postpone the start a day because there's going to be an all-day anti-racism workshop that was just scheduled for the first day, which gave us a sense of the priorities of the organization that the anti-racism workshops have primacy over the college-level seminar that the, the students are there for. At the end of the first week, the first week was on indigeneity and Native American genocide and related questions. At the end of the first week, one of these teaching assistant type people, a college-age student, said some of the Black students are feeling harmed because we spent a whole week talking about Native American genocide and there wasn't any discussion of anti-Blackness in this week, which suggests that there was already in the first week some resistance to deep discussion and intellectual development in that seminar space. That's interesting. As my listeners will know, and as you may know, I'm a critic of certain forms of, for lack of a better term, identity politics, which I think is a really complicated and so on term. But I always try to resist the cheap attacks on it. And the sort of like, oh, it all devolves into oppression Olympics sounds like a really cheap attack on it. But here you're saying that's what it was, right? Like my group is more oppressed 
we're being harmed because you're talking about the oppression of this other group when, you know, the seminar went on to, of course, talk about anti-Black racism. And as it happens, you know, you, the instructor, are uh, a Black man in the United States who's, you know, the director of Africana Studies in Villanova. I mean, it's sort of, it nearly seems silly. I was frustrated. On the other hand, I can appreciate the students who came to a summer experience wanting to think about questions of justice and wanting to explore their own identity, you know, are impatient, right? When you're 16, you're impatient. That makes sense, right? And I think part of the frustration on my part was that the organization, the Telluride Association, didn't seem like it had communicated to the students that what a college-level seminar is, is something that unfolds over time, unfolds slowly, will be frustrating, will not give you everything you want on the first day or the first week. So that the messaging from the larger organization or even the sense that there are norms to this thing called the, the college seminar, and they're there for a reason. They're there for a reason that you probably agree with, right? To deepen your intellectual life and to allow you to pursue justice with a sharper orientation and with better tools. I think that, that could have been communicated to the, the students much better. And speaking of sort of, you say, you know, the priority seemed to be on the anti-racism workshop rather than the academic seminar. You obviously are a university professor and so on. Who was teaching these anti-racism workshops? Because my understanding is it wasn't sort of people with, I sort of hate the hierarchy of academia and so on, but it wasn't people with the equivalent set of academic qualifications, as I understand. Telluride employs two college-age students to be basically both teaching assistants and camp counselors, so to speak, right? if it were a summer camp, so coordinating residential life. And most of these anti-racism workshops were led by these college-age teaching assistants. So you start noticing some of these issues in the seminar in the first week, sort of from the beginning, first class is cancelled, and then, you know, they say, hey, how come, you know, we're starting with this topic rather than that topic? How does that unfold? How do you try to get the students to give a seminar a chance and to the spirit of what it's like to have these discussions which can further the intellectual development and have been so meaningful to generations of alumni who've been writing to you and so on. Give us a little bit of a sense of, of how this unfolds over the following days. Sure. One of the things that we've done in 2014 and, and did again in 2022 was to talk about snippets of educational theory. We read some Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, together with the students to talk about different models of learning and why there is a form of empowerment that comes, particularly for those from marginalized backgrounds, that comes about in this problem-solving-based seminar-style form of learning. We also read some Jacques Rancière on pedagogy, where he's thinking about the ways in which the knowing teacher is distorting the student's understanding of their own capacity to obtain knowledge and to organize together to get that knowledge. So we tried to give little snippets of theory to explain why the seminar mattered. And I tried to share experiences from my own college days where I was frustrated in seminars. And the first day, the first week, I was annoyed. I felt like I didn't know how to intervene. I felt like students who were coming in from these fancy high schools, fancy private boarding schools, knew how to talk in slick sort of ways and were saying all these things that I could barely keep track of. And I, coming from a big public high school in the Midwest, in the U.S., and being a Black 17, 18-year-old, I didn't know what was, uh, you know, what was going on. I felt like I was being disempowered. And then, as time passed, I figured out that this format, this style of engagement was one that could allow me to realize I have knowledge, I can contribute knowledge in this space, my voice is just as important as those of my fellow students around me, and I could flourish in this sort of space. 
So I think the seminar now looks different from the seminar of 20 years ago when I was a student for good reasons, right? That there is something really awkward about putting 12 students around the table and saying, what do you think, right? There are inequalities that enter into that space. And so when I was teaching last summer in 2022, as we did in 2014, we did all sorts of little exercises to prime the pump, as it were, right? To have the students talk with the person next to them about their ideas and then share that with the whole group or coming up with different projects that students and small groups could do, making a chart of some issue in the text that we were talking about and then sharing that, doing visual things, doing audio things, doing all sorts of different activities so that when we were in that just open seminar space, everyone felt like they had something to contribute and everyone could be get the most out of that seminar. And you said something interesting about who spoke in the seminar in the first week and then who would speak in the seminar subsequently. So my understanding is in the first week you had, I mean, I've taught many seminars and you have a sort of usual spread of, I found it very recognizable, you know, a few people who will talk in any situation, a few people who are shy and who it's harder to get to talk. And then a, you know, a few people in the middle who talk often the best students who will talk when they have something to contribute. Um, but that sort of changed as the seminar went on. So how did who spoke change and how did the atmosphere of the seminar deteriorate despite your best efforts? You're describing in the first week, there was this ordinary distribution of students across races, across genders, in their contributions to the seminar. As the weeks went on, the white students were increasingly silent to the point where they were effectively totally silent unless we prompted them really directly to say something. And the Asian American students were mixed. A couple of them were still relatively active and the Black students became much more vocal, which was good to see. The Black students had important things to contribute, had experiences that other students didn't have that were enriching the conversation. And yet it would be a much richer conversation if everyone's ideas and experiences could be bumping up against everyone else's ideas and experiences. And what the visions of intellectual life and justice that would emerge would be all the deeper if that free flow of ideas could have persisted. And so you come into the first week, you sort of start to realize oh, there's a little bit of tension in the room, but also you're able to have normal discussions, you have a relatively normal distribution of who participates and so on. What happens in the second and third week that really makes the show a terrible mixed metaphor go off the rails? Yeah, so more and more of these sorts of uh, incidents where I or my co-instructor would say something and then students would report being harmed would happen. So one of the exercises we did was you know, one that's very common in, in uh, college and law schools, having a mock court where you divide students into groups. Some are lawyers on one side of the case, some are lawyers on another side of the case. We were basically re-arguing Supreme Court cases, one around immigration and one around mass incarceration. And after doing this, the students reported that some of them were harmed by this exercise because they had to argue for a side that they didn't agree with, a side that they thought was unjust. I have to say, I'm not wholly unsympathetic to this, and I would not have asked the students to re-argue Dred Scott, a case that is deeply representative of white supremacy in the U.S. In these two cases we chose, which are recent cases that had arguments on both sides, one could make an argument from the hard left for opposing prison growth, as prison abolitionists do these days. We encourage the students, if they were prison abolitionists and assigned to argue on the side of the state of California, in this case, Ron V. Plata was saying they did not want to expand the prisons in light of human rights violations in the prisons. Incarcerated folks were saying we need to expand the prison capacity. If you're a prison abolitionist, you can argue on the side of the state of California, you need to shrink the system. So that would have been fine with us. But the students were perceiving this format of the mock court as one that's inherently harmful. 
Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this is there's sort of two things that I find concerning about that. You know, the first is that students don't see the value of, you know, as John Stuart Mill says, that if you only know your own side of a case, you don't really know the case at all. And that's perhaps unsurprising, right? I think that is a complex thought, the idea that actually to truly understand your beliefs and your case, you need to take seriously the case on the other side. And one great way of doing that is to force yourself to argue for the other side, because that way, you know, all of your human biases, if I want to dismiss the other case, go away and, and you sort of suspend your disbelief. And for a moment, you try and inhabit that case. And then you can go back to your actual convictions, but you'll sharpen your arguments, you'll sharpen your understanding of that case. It's sad, but unsurprising that students don't instinctively understand that. And I'm sure that was true 20 or 40 years ago as well. But for many students, that's something that you learn as you go through a high quality education that teaches you the virtue of that kind of versatility and so on. But the other thing that is sort of perhaps more concerning to me, therefore, is that, you know, it's one to say, look, this exercise is kind of bullshit or to like roll your eyes or to be like, oh, you know, fine, I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll give you a mediocre teaching evaluation because I don't enjoy the exercise. It's another thing to say, this is harmful. I mean, it's not sort of like, it's something I don't enjoy, or it's something that I struggle with, or it's perhaps something where I become a little emotional and, and I need a moment to sort of compose myself and say, this is harmful. So it's wrong of you to ask us to do that. And by the way, you're kind of a bad person for doing it, right? I mean, that's the element of it, which does seem to be new. And I don't know if this is sort of the notions of psychological safety and safetyism that people like John Hyde talk about or what the nature of it is. But to me, it's sort of that second element which makes this claim that this exercise was harmful so concerning. I can appreciate that we're in difficult times because of COVID, because of the public visibility of white supremacy in the U.S., that a need for safety makes sense, and particularly when you're young right, and you're away from your parents, one is more anxious. But if you want the skills in order to advance justice, some of those skills involve understanding the arguments that are being made in the public square, understanding the workings of the legal system and the political system. For example, in this case that I was talking about, Brown v. Plata, we also did Fire v. Doe, but in Brown v. Plata, the, the California case, this Democratic governor, Brown, was forced because of his office to defend this prison system, which he really wasn't so comfortable with. That's part of democratic politics. And, you know, thinking about that, thinking about if you're 16, do you really want to become a politician if this is what you're going to have to do, right? Defend something you're uncomfortable with? You know, are there ways of pursuing justice outside of the political realm that might be more appealing to you? These are the reasons why we wanted to talk about these cases. And it was frustrating that those reasons, which we explained to the students, they were not receptive to. So they tell you, you're harming us, right? What you're doing with some of this, how do you respond? What happens next? What's the next step? So the language of harm, it seems like it is soliciting apology. Right? You say, you harmed me. It seems as if it's saying, can you apologize to me for this harm? That's our natural human instinct. And I think the students were frustrated that my inclination was not to immediately apologize, right? It was to think through how can we structure the seminar differently so that the issues that you care about can be in the center? There were various opportunities for students to present additional readings or additional issues or texts that they cared about. And we encouraged students to use those opportunities to bring in what they felt was missing. If some omission was harming them, there are spaces in the structure of the seminar to fill those gaps. We pointed out that we do all sorts of different exercises in the seminar, from these partner activities to group work, to whole group discussion, to having the seminar split in two. And if one of these sorts of activities they felt more uncomfortable in, then 
we can rejigger, right? We can do more of a different sort of activity. So we try to be responsive in that way, using the sort of structure of the seminar and pointing out to the students ways that they could strategically use that structure to get the things that they were looking for, to get their needs met. Did that work? No. Again, I, I don't know what was happening the other 21 hours a day when we were not in the seminar. We were told that there was tension in the community. Eventually, in the fourth week, two of the Asian American students were sent home. They were expelled from the community. We were not told a reason for that. I couldn't speculate about why that was. These were the two Asian American students who continued to actively participate in the seminar, continued to raise their voice in discussions, often with opinions that were not following the orthodoxy that had developed among the students. There could have been other things going on in the seminar. I'm sure those two students felt very uncomfortable and were awkward given the dynamics of the space. Who knows what might have transpired there. So there's 12 students to begin with, right? So how many Asian students had there been? There had been, I think, three. There was one student who didn't get a visa. So there was a visa problem, and then there were these two who were expelled. And then I believe there was one Asian student who remained after those two were expelled in the visa problem. I see. Interesting. And obviously, the numbers here are small enough that I want to be very careful about drawing sort of broader conclusions from this or, or something like that. But it is interesting. I find, as I've argued in other spaces, the term people of color quite troubling in part because it posits this sort of simplistic distinction between white people and all these different non-white groups. But, you know, one of the assumptions that goes into it is that there's this sort of natural alliance culturally or in other ways between, for example, Asian Americans and African Americans. And I think the reality is often a good deal more complicated. But it's interesting that in this particular space, for whatever reasons that weren't disclosed to you, it's these two Asian American students who continue to speak up and who perhaps disagreed with prevailing opinion in the seminar, who ended up literally sort of being sent home. I mean, it's a saddening reflection on the ease with which this kind of intergroup communication is going to succeed if in a very least space like Telluride, that's how it plays out. But you didn't get a sense of sort of, I mean, when these two Asian kids would speak up in class and they would express these different opinions, was there silence and then somebody would speak against them, they'd be snapping. I mean, did it feel like they were being, you know, made to understand that they were doing inappropriate things in the eyes of their peers in the seminar? Or what did that feel like in the moment where you were present? To offer just one example, we had a guest speaker, a history professor from University of Michigan come in to the seminar one day in the fourth week, who was an expert on mass incarceration. He was a proponent of the claim that the primary lens with which we need to understand mass incarceration is economic, right? It's class first, race and other issues are important. This is a Black professor, a Black socialist professor at University of Michigan who was visiting. And this was a view that one of these Asian American students agreed with. The student was delighted to hear the visiting professor put forward this view. And it appeared as if he was gathering up all of his courage. He was physically shaking. And he said, I agree with this view that we need to be thinking carefully about the class at the start of our investigations of the prison system in the U.S. Seems right to me. And then the college-age teaching assistant turned to the Asian-American student immediately after saying this and said, I strongly disagree with you. And there was silence. And the next day, the student was not in the, the group anymore. Okay, so you're asked to lecture. What did you do? I spoke for 15 or 20 minutes to set the stage for the reading that we were going to discuss. We were talking about Frank Wilderson's Afro-Pessimism, sort of a classic text of this anti-Blackness theory that circulates widely these days. And then we had a, I think, relatively fruitful discussion of the different aspects of the text. You know, at the end, I said, I would have said all the things I told you in my opening lecture during the discussion, but just prompted by the flow of the discussion, right? That's how I usually operate in a seminar. I don't want to 
direct the discussion by giving, you know, my take on the text, you know, my framing on the text. I want to provide information that's essential but responsive to student questions, student concerns, you know, in the flow of the seminar. Let the student questions guide where the discussion is going. And then, you know, I can intervene to push that in a more productive direction as I see it going, right? Moving sort of dialectically through the the three hours of the seminar. But my uh, reflection on, you know, why I don't lecture was not taken well. This teaching assistant took my statement as an attack on her, made a speech about as a Black woman, I was not respecting her and her experiences. And she was claiming the students were being harmed by witnessing this and that they had to leave without eating a meal together with us at our home. And she declared this on behalf of the students. Exactly. Yeah. And the students then sort of duly followed her sheepishly out of the house. So, I mean, it must have been a very awkward moment. Sorry to make you dwell on it. But so she makes a speech. I mean, what happens then? Yes. So... I mean, we tried to say, well, do you want some time to sort of catch your breath or maybe I can think about it for a while and then we can have our meal. She said on their behalf, they needed some time to discuss. They met outside, sort of caucused, and my family was inside the house. <laughs> they had maybe 15 or 20 minutes of discussion about whether they would eat with us or not eat with us. Eventually, their compromise was that they would eat our food, but they would eat it in our backyard while we had to stay inside the house and then they would leave. How gracious of them. That was how it was resolved. I think, the, yeah, these situations are really difficult to deal with. There's something really powerful about the leadership of Black women in justice movements today, right? You know, Black Lives Matter could not have been as successful as it has in hugely important ways had it not been for the leadership of Black women. We also need to be able to think complexly about particular dynamics and particular contexts and what pursuing justice looks like in this particular place at this particular time with these particular personalities and not just use an identity category to stop discussion. We should use it to open discussion. So this all comes to a blow at your house. You go to Telluride and say, help us. <laughs> they say, nope. Do you go home? I mean, what was the aftermath? So the next week we were supposed to have class on Monday. One of the teaching assistants said the students were exhausted or not in the right mindset or something like that to have class on Monday. So why don't we just postpone the start of the week until Tuesday? I'd can't really say no to that. So we uh, said, sure. We came in uh, Tuesday morning and no one was in the seminar room at the appointed time. A little bit later, the uh, teaching assistants came in and a little bit later, all of the students came in holding a piece of paper that they all had. Then they each read a paragraph from this piece of paper, which they had apparently drafted collectively, each paragraph naming one of the forms of harm that the seminar had caused to them said, it will take me some time to process what you've said uh, and think about it. I can't respond right away. It seemed like the sort of thing that was asking for an apology and a transformation of the seminar and explicitly asking for lecturing, that is to make it no longer a seminar. Interesting. All right. So they have this demand that you lecture. They read you a list of grievances. I mean, I'll say about the list of grievances, which I did include many of them in the, the essay, I mean, I'm not a perfect instructor. I'm sure I made mistakes and said some things that are wrong. Many of these things were just mishearing, right? like hearing me use the wrong pronoun for a basketball player. I don't believe that happened. I believe it was misheard, right? Hearing me use one word or another in another case, I believe it was misheard. I could be wrong, but these are the sorts of things that one could have a conversation about, right? So I think I heard you say that. Did you really say that? 
No, actually, I said this other thing, right? There are ways to address this that deepen, you know, our sense of community by each understanding that we're vulnerable and fallible and trying to grow together rather than developing an antagonistic dynamic. So you read this list of grievances and you have a choice between lecturing for the next days and perhaps showing some videos. This is always a popular student demand. <laughs> or I suppose abandoning the seminar, what did you choose? So we told the Telluride leadership, either you tell the students what a college seminar is, and then we can have a conversation with them and you about how to move forward, or we won't continue. And the leadership did not want to intervene. We offered to the students if they wanted to continue doing any of the written assignments, if they wanted us to you know, offer feedback on anything, if they wanted to meet individually with us, if they wanted to Zoom or whatever, we were happy to do that. But we would not continue the seminar format unless the Telluride leadership intervened. And we didn't hear from any of the students after that. And so, and presumably you don't live where the seminar was happening, right? So you, you spent a few more days there and then you packed up your things and you went home. Or what was the ending on a personal level for you? Yeah, so I guess this is another thing that maybe 16-year-olds don't appreciate, right? That uh, people have complicated lives. My daughter was in a summer camp that ran for another two weeks, right? Uh, through the six weeks of the program, we can't leave. It was a summer camp where they were putting on a musical, right? Her performance was coming up. Like I had to stay in town in Ann Arbor there until the program ended because of her camp. My wife, who was uh, at that point eight months pregnant, flew back to Philadelphia where we live. She gave birth the day before the seminar was supposed to end when I was still in Ann Arbor at the summer camp. So there was new life that came out of the thing, but uh, sort of unintentionally there. And so for two weeks, you were sort of stuck in an arbor, living in a house sort of next door to these students or close to these students and feeling like you're sort of slinking around campus. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it wasn't uh, particularly pleasant, but I got some reading done, listened to some nice audiobooks, explored Ann Arbor, which is a lovely town. So let's sort of widen the lens a little bit. You know, you really talk to us in an interesting way through the microdynamics of this. And I think it is really helpful to do that because there's, in some ways, understandably, a sort of shyness about acknowledging that there is a cultural problem in, in many American institutions now. And I think just actually going through blow by blow, what that kind of looks like and how somebody, you know, who's well-intentioned and actually politically sympathetic to certain aspects of this, like you, ends up being sort of in the crosshairs. But to draw out the lens a little bit, I mean, how do you think we got to this point? I mean, why is it that, you know, a storied institution like Telluride that has these democratic values that we both admire and a set of students who, you know, care about causes that are noble of fighting and overcoming racism in the United States and so on? You know, how does that go so wrong? Do you have a theory or how would you describe the broader social, cultural forces that have shaped this particular experience of yours? Yeah, so I'd name a couple of broader factors. One, that we are at a, a moment of paradigm shift in how we think about race in America. Right? We were in a multicultural paradigm for a long time where Blackness was one among many different racial identities, all of which were celebrated, all of which had different forms of oppression that we could stand in solidarity with, but ultimately in the direction of all living happily together in a rainbow nation. Now, the demands of Black justice movements and other movements are saying, actually, there are deep, deep problems in U.S. culture, U.S. institutions, U.S. laws, and we don't need inclusion and integration. We need to imagine something new. We need to imagine Black justice outside of the existing institutions maritimes. I think that's entirely right. I think there's something that's deeply problematic with the multicultural paradigm that had been obscuring anti-Blackness which it was causing all sorts of harm as is being revealed every day now as 
we're investigating anti-blackness in real estate and healthcare and environment, on and on, right? There are real problems there, and we need a new paradigm to address that. But we're in a moment of transition, so it's unsettled what that will look like. And because it's unsettled, this sort of toxic and abusive environment can grow up because there's no settled paradigm. So that's one thing. The other general cultural factor I would name is just this growth of diversity bureaucracies and managers, right? That The thought that when our institutions have been causing harm, the proper way to address that is to hire professionals, or in this case, college-age students, to basically to mediate conflict, right? To communicate the proper way to think about diversity in an institution. And, you know, I think while that's well-intentioned, it is distracting from the force of the justice claims being made by social movements. And it's also creating unintended effects of inhibiting the pursuit of justice in our institutions rather than advancing it. Both of those points are really interesting. Help me unpack the first point a little bit, which I know is based in in your latest book and and, and a lot of your academic work. I guess, what is the multiculturalist paradigm and what's troubling about it to you? The notion that our nation in the U.S. is composed of many different peoples with many different cultures. We need to name and celebrate them. We also need to recognize the challenges that they face. And we have the resources within our current institutions, within our current political frameworks, to address whatever problems those groups are facing. And we're moving steadily toward a nation where many different sorts of people will live happily together. That sort of a happy story, I think, has been rightly challenged by justice movements that say, actually, you know, we have a lot of evidence now over decades, over even longer, that that's actually not happening, right? That there are really deep injustices that are baked into our institutions, into our individual and collective habits. And a more radical kind of transformation is needed than just a policy fix here and there that will make everyone live happily together. So I guess I see three different elements here, and I'm trying to understand which of them you're challenging, right? I mean, the first is the idea that there's people from many different groups who live in the United States, and you know we should celebrate some of that cultural diversity, and our goal should be to build a nation where these groups can happily live together next to each other and so on. That's something to which I'm broadly sympathetic, though I'm ultimately a methodological individualist in philosophy, which is to say I don't think that we should think of our society as effectively composed of groups of their own rights and responsibilities. I think that we are individuals who are, of course, parts of those groups in meaningful ways, but the basic fundamental unit is the citizen rather than the group, and that's sort of you know a set of debates in, in philosophy. But, but broadly speaking, I'm sympathetic to the recognition of these different cultural groups and they're meaningful and we should celebrate the way it enriches the country and we should try and get along, right? So that's sort of one element. The second element is the optimistic narrative. The second element, which I think is distinct, even though it comes together often, but it's conceptually distinct, is to say, all right, and things have been becoming better because we've started to spread those different groups and they're, they're getting along better and better and things are going to be great, right? That's, that's sort of the second element to object to. And then perhaps a third element, which seems implicit in what you said, is the running together of different forms of injustice. The thought that the prejudices faced by African-American descendants of slaves who grew up in deeply disadvantaged neighborhoods is sort of equivalent to the disadvantage that an Indian-American immigrant who comes from a Brahmin family and, you know, grows up in a fancy neighborhood might face. Now, it seems to me that you know, on the second, we can debate. I tend to be a little bit more optimistic than some, but I also see the reasons for pessimism, right? The third, to me, seems obviously sort of true. I think Michael Lind was one of the first 
people said that in the 1990s in a very different register of saying that we tend to think of American history as white versus non-white, but in some important ways, it's black and non-black. That has always been the most defining dividing line of American politics because of slavery and so on. So I guess when you're criticizing multiculturalism, are you criticizing each of these three elements? Or are you primarily criticizing the second or the third or help us think through that? Thanks, yeah. And that's a helpful framework to name to address the third element first. As you're saying, there, there is a claim that's circulating now that anti-Black racism is qualitatively different from other sorts of racism. That strikes me as correct, but also it's usually put in quite mystifying sorts of ways. Sometimes there's talk about Blackness as ontological or exclusions from ontology or metaphysics, or it's sort of hard to understand exactly what's being said there. The way I interpret that is as a political claim, right, about domination, right, that one of the ways that we think about justice is in terms of the injustice of domination and trying to end domination. The closest thing we get to domination in laboratory conditions is slavery, and particularly the Atlantic slavery Blacks brought from Africa to the U.S. If we're interested in understanding domination, the clearest kind of case that we can attend to is that form of slavery which aligns with this sort of long tradition of domination being connected with slavery in the European political tradition. And if we are still living with the afterlives of slavery in the U.S., right, if the habits and frameworks that were developed to make slavery plausible persist into the present, then even today, anti-Black racism is a paradigm case of domination. So that makes it qualitatively different because it hews most closely to this paradigm of domination. So that would be how I understand that claim, the qualitative difference in political, not metaphysical or ontological terms. In terms of the multiculturalism, I think this really depends on one's perspective. If one is looking from above, as it were, right, sort of down at America and all these different sorts of people and imagining that they, you know, they all have their problems so they could all get along, that sort of makes sense. I think when one is looking from the margins, so to speak, when one is worried about being pulled over by the police, worried about friends and family who are incarcerated when one is worried about microaggressions or bodily violence or whatever it is, it doesn't feel as if either an optimistic path makes sense, an optimistic story makes sense that where things are getting better, or even that this framework of multiculturalism is one that has the capacity to manage this difference. If at the margins we're feeling bodily threats, right? Multiculturalism doesn't seem like it's working to make us safe. And what do you think the solution then is? I mean, if multiculturalism is the wrong framework, I mean, is this ultimately sort of a form of black nationalism? Or if we reject some idea of what was going to be these different cultural groups and there's some path towards having them live in a more just and peaceful way with each other, next to each other, etc. If that feels naive or it feels like it's not appreciating the amount of injustice today, what in your mind then is the solution to the kind of society we should try to build? Right. That's why we're at such an unsettled and unsettling moment, because we now have the language to name the problem. The voices from the margins are being lifted up into public discourse and naming the problems with multiculturalism. We don't yet have a new paradigm that we're moving toward. And I think justice movements have the best insights into justice, right? Those who have experienced domination acquire expertise in domination. But there isn't a new paradigm yet. We need to listen carefully to and sort through the various accounts of justice that are emerging in those grassroots movements. There are all sorts of experiments that are happening, experiments around transformative justice, experiments around resourcing communities with mutual aid and other forms, you know, are exciting. They aren't yet coalesced into a package as yet, but I think that's where we ought to be directing our attention. So, you know, I think there's many things we agree with. It's always more interesting to focus on the things we, we disagree on. So let me try and push you a little bit and see what you think. 
you know, I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of work in actually trying to tell the sort of intellectual history of a broader set of ideas about identity that came to be very influential in universities over the course of the last decades. And then also about how they became popularized and sort of transmuted into the more public form. And, you know, I think there's a relation between those two, but the sorts of ideas in which your work is rooted in the sorts of ideas in the tradition of critical race theory, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and so on, are, you know, vastly more sophisticated and surprisingly, obviously, than the ideas that you read on Twitter or Instagram and so on. So I want to be very clear about the distinction. But I wonder whether there isn't some relation between those fundamental assumptions and some of the ways in which that ideology is then applied. And of course, that's something that critics of political traditions always say, right? I think that some things that people criticize in liberalism is, you know, ways in which the real world always gets screwed up, not anything inherent to liberalism, but critics of liberalism are going to say, this is because of liberalism, we're going to disagree about that. So we might have a similar kind of disagreement about that more radical political tradition. But it seems to me that if you imbibe the kind of radical pessimism about the nature and the perfectibility of America that somebody like Derek Bell wrote for, you know, very cogently and argued for very cogently, if you think that America is basically still as racist today as it was 50 years ago, and any kind of improvement that we see as sort of chimera, which just masks the underlying interest of whites, broadly speaking. I'm sure I'm slightly simplifying, but that, that seems to me sort of one of the core sets of ideas of a scholar who's perhaps the most key figure in founding critical race theory. And if you agree with some of the things you just said, and what we need to do is to embrace a paradigm that questions the viability of that, that says all of that was naive and we need to strike out in a very different way. Doesn't that get you quite close to some of the political instincts that the students in your seminar ended up having, which is to say, this idea of sitting around a table together and getting along and listening to each other and debating these ideas, that's all really naive. Some of us have experienced a different form of oppression, and it should be up to us to define this new society. And you know what? If that means that some of the people who've imposed harm need to be sent home, rather than us struggling to get along, then so be it. Again, I don't want to say in any simplistic way that one set of ideas led to that outcome or that any of the thinkers that I mentioned would endorse that. I'm sure that if they read your article, they were horrified by the set of events and so on. But it does seem to me that if you embrace that deep pessimism about the nature of the society and the possibility for some form of future cooperation or reconciliation, whatever you want to call it, it does seem to give license, or it does seem to justify those forms of political struggle at the Telluride Summer Seminar. Yeah, thanks for that really important question. So I don't think the position that I'm describing, I don't think of it as pessimistic. I actually think of it as optimistic. I believe in a world without domination. Right? I think we should be imagining a world without domination. I also don't think there's a clear path for uh, how to get from here to that world without domination. I think we need to experiment. We need to try out different things. I think we need to read literature. We need to draw, do art, do all sorts of things that help us foster our imagination so that we can be motivated to combat domination in our present world and move toward that world without domination. In terms of dynamics in the seminar, it seems like there are two different things that we need to hold at the same time, which are really tough to hold at the same time. One is urgency, right? That there are harms happening. There are people being hurt. There's a precariousness of violence that's experienced by Black folks and others in the U.S. and beyond that requires an urgent response. On the other hand, we also need to acquire the 
skills and ways of discerning that can allow us to rightly respond. And that requires time, that requires wrestling with each other, wrestling with ideas, turning to history, turning to other cultures. And I think the social media age has made it so we only get the urgency side. We don't get this formation and discernment side. And the seminar promises to bring the two together, right? We can read about topics that call for urgency, but we can do it in a way that's allowing for development over time and growing our capacities to discern where domination is happening and what the right responses would look like. I've kept you for far too long, but let me ask you a last question. If we want to make some progress towards that society without domination, but we don't quite know what that looks like, what can we do? If people are moved by that vision, what should they do tomorrow? Yeah, I think there are all sorts of organizations in our neighborhoods that are doing this. Local bookstores that are having uh, reading groups about reading speculative fiction novels that are imagining new worlds. There are organizing projects that are thinking about how can we in this neighborhood live without policing and right, without calling the state when there are forms of harm. You know, there are all sorts of experiments happening. Many of them, they get things wrong, many of them which are uncomfortable and frustrating, but having the willingness to engage in experiments that may fail, right, may not feel the most comfortable. That seems like a capacity we really need to encourage these days. Vincent Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.